You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Solomon nudged the corpse with the toe of his boot. Still warm, he said. Hasn't been here more than a few moments, I'd say. I don't see a wound. Solomon's friend, Bonisak, knelt for a closer examination, then leaned back suddenly. Think he had some kind of disease? Looks healthy enough. Solomon knelt too, apart from being dead, that is. He ran his gloved hands over the limp body. Wait, see here, an arrow went straight through his neck. It must have come out the other side. Amazing. I'd have thought only a crossbow would have that much force. Poor fellow must have run on until he choked on his own blood. Whoever shot him probably thought he'd missed. Bonisak looked up. Then it's likely no one will be looking for him, right? Solomon considered. Probably not, he admitted, although they might be tracking him by the bloodstains. But I don't hear any dogs. Bonisak drew his knife. Then he's ours to claim. Let's get him gutted and cut up before he spoils. There's enough meat here to feed us all week. Sharon Newman is the author of the Guinevere series, consisting of Guinevere, the Chessboard Queen, and Guinevere Evermore, and the Catherine Lavendure series, which began in 1993 with Death Comes as Epiphany. The most recent novels are The Outcast Dove and A Witch in the Woods. Her new book is Death Before Comline. Thank you for joining me, Sharon. Oh, thank you. You work in historical mysteries and in historical fiction, yet... And nonfiction, yes. And nonfiction, Mm -hmm. uh, yet you're firmly rooted in the 21st century here. Talk about making the choice to reach back to the times of Guinevere to recreate a time that's as foreign to us as the surface of Mars. (laughs) Well, actually, I'm only very tenuously tied to the 21st century. It confuses me a great deal. I've been a medieval historian since I was 19 and, uh, and picked that as my major in, as an undergrad. So I'm really writing about what I know. It's one thing, however, to you know be a scholar of medieval times and to study them. It's another to write fiction about these characters. Talk about creating, uh, recreating Guinevere, and especially creating the historical mysteries of Catherine Levendor. Well, Guinevere was much easier because it it's a part of the Arthurian myth. And when I wrote these books, which was in the early 80s, there had been no fiction done on Guinevere. It was almost all, this was long before Marion Zimmer Bradley's Mists of Avalon or anything like that. And so I started writing it because I had been studying the Arthurian myths. And I sort of imagined why, Guine- why would Guinevere turn out to be such a super bitch in all the stories? And my take on her was that she was the only one who saw things as they were, and everyone else was interested in the magic and the fantasy. But they were fantasies, and, and you can play with that. When I started doing the Catherine books, several years later, I had amassed, I had gotten my master's and started my doctoral work and then had a baby, and my, it's an old story. But um, when I started doing the Catherine books, I realized that even with the background I had, I couldn't do it as well as I wanted to. So I was living in Southern California at the time and applied to UCSB for a doctorate in medieval history to, in order to write better, more accurate novels. But for me, since I've been doing both ever since um, 
my very first book, which is a fantasy, came out in 1976. And I was not very old then, I want you to know. So um, somebody just asked me at a panel last week how I, how I mixed the two. And my problem is, how could I separate the two? I, I see these people. I live with these people. I know them better than I know friends and so forth. So I'm afraid I'm not very good at saying how I do it. it it's what I do. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's one of the things that's so interesting about the books is that you have a, a great feel for recreating those times using the language, some of the language of those times, but for people in this time. And that's not as easily said as done as it is done. So talk about recreating medieval times and medieval characters for modern readers. That is harder. And part of what I have to remember is uh, to have, well, for any kind of fiction, if you're working in an area, place that's, or a job or something that's not familiar to other people, I, what I say is you always need an Alice, somebody who's lost in Wonderland that the other characters can explain it to. So I, I will have some character, one character who maybe comes from another country or is of another religion because all of my books deal with Jewish-Christian relations in the Middle Ages. And then I, um, so that, that gives you a chance to explain things, but you can't over-explain. So mostly I try to have the people's actions and so forth be made clear. Just things like um, hauling up all the cheese, you know, hanging from a hook every night in a bag so the mice don't get it. Just little things like that. Or uh, somebody once asked me, I had somebody going into an outhouse, and they wanted to know what you used for toilet paper. And actually, I didn't know. But I had a friend who was doing her dissertation on middens. And I met her at the library, and, she, and I said, Miriam, what did people in the Middle Ages use for toilet paper? And she didn't bat an eyelash. She said, what century, what latitude? Wow. <laughs> so that does help. But little touches like that. And then as far as language goes... I tend to have, um, I'm, I'm rather a prude, so the really bad obscenities are in dead languages. And, but that adds a bit of spice, and people can just guess what they mean. <laughs> One of the things that interests me is, that, is the way people talk in books versus the way that they talk in person. Mm -hmm. uh, in modern books, we have uh, conversations that are easy to read, but not necessarily or remotely resemble the kind of conversations we actually have. With When you're writing a book that's set in the Middle Ages, you have a, a even bigger challenge. How do you know what the dialogue was like back then, how people actually talked, and then how do you kind of try to render that in modern prose so that modern readers can get the gist of how people talked and what they talked about? Well, I think people talked and talked about much the same things they do now. And especially since I'm setting the books in, on the continent where you know, everyone was speaking Old French or Middle High German or something like that, uh, I just translate it in, in that sense. And I've read a lot of, especially Old French, not, not the literary things, but the, the songs and, and uh, popular poetry, uh, such as we have. And that does give you a feel for the cadence of the language 
And so turning it into modern English, the main thing is not to use anachronisms. And there are so many, like you can't have a ballpark figure and, and you know, time isn't telescoped. There, there are many things. As long as I avoid those, I, I think it's okay. The other aspect of this recreating uh, the Middle Ages is the people's actual characters were seriously different. The culture was very different. It's in some ways, wasn't it? Uh, uh, it's a pretty alien culture. Well, again, I've lived there for forty years. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, not really. There were different attitudes. Um, you know, one book I have uh, has to do with pilgrimage and. The motives for the murder were based on a religious belief that, which, well, now the, the murderer did not want the pilgrim to reach the goal where their sins would be forgiven because she didn't believe they deserved forgiveness. So she wanted them to, to die without being forgiven. But the, the emotion was the same. The, you know, the attitudes were the same in terms of worrying about your children and your family and... Um, you know, the little pettiness that's, that people have, the jealousies, the, um, the, the arguments about the price of this or, and so forth. That, that, people don't change. Your main character, Catherine Lavendur, mm-hmm. is a member of the convent of the Paraclete. So ta- yeah, she's an, um, I, that's where I began. The Paraclete, uh, if, you, if anybody's ever heard of Eloise and Abelard, which may be all that most people know about that era, um, Eloise uh, was the the abbess of the convent, and but there were there were nuns there, and there were also she also had students. And Catherine begins as a student at the Paraclete, which is different because she goes out into the world. I wasn't going to write a Sister Cad file, um, so but I had to posit that my main character, my main female character, was educated, and excuse me, there had to be a reason for it. So I start her off as a student. I talk about uh, recreating this atmosphere of the the Paraclete, where the abbess, and using that as a springboard for crime fiction, which is a very modern invention. That's true. Well, I don't know. I can think of a few. They weren't called crime fictions, but yes, there there were certainly. Marie de France did some some work that could be called crime fiction in its own way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, first I went to the place where the paraclete had been, just to, to move around it. And I was very lucky that in the first draft, uh, two people, both men, oddly, who knew, one was a medieval, one was Andrew Greeley, of course, who, who wrote mysteries. And then the other was a Trappist monk named Chrysogonus Waddell. And Chrysogonus first of all, gave me all these tips because he had done the, um, all the records from the paraclete. And he knew where everything was as best we know, and he knew what the, be- you know, what the ritual was and everything like that. And so he pointed out to me that men were not allowed in the cloister and little things like that. So I, I had help. This is a group effort. Now, when you sit down to create a, a novel like the... The Outcast of you want to have, but you have your characters and you have your setting, but you need to dream up a plot. So talk about how do you go about architecting a book? Do you have 
come to the central crime first and then build outward, or do you build, take your characters into a place and let I them commit the crime? I start with the characters, and in this particular book, this is the ninth in the series. So I have my main character uh, in this book is is Solomon, the Catherine's Jewish cousin, whom because her father was a converted Jew, and part of this is is the the tension between the the Jewish and Christian communities. And and also I wanted to tell people that it wasn't always as black and white as as history books make it, that Jews and Christians did mingle a lot. But there was still the tension, and that's what this book is about. And so I was interested in, first of all, giving Solomon his own book, but also the difficulty in the south of France, particularly where the Jewish community was very well established and had been for almost 2,000 years. There were Jews in the south of France even before the time of Christ. So, um, but, but how, how this community functioned and what would happen if, um, you know, if something alien came into that community. Now, the tension between the Jews and the Christians is that you say at the heart of all of these books. And sometimes it's more peripheral than others, but it's always there. So talk about evoking that and making that relevant, which it obviously is, to the world we live in now and the, kind, the way the echoes uh, inform one another. I, I think that's, that's very important because especially, again, what this book is set in and around Toulouse. And Toulouse was much more, um, because the, the Jewish community had been there so long, they were much more open to Jews, there was even a Jew on the city council, which is uh, was unheard of, for the most part in the Middle Ages, and actually in America until about 1910 or so. But they, there still was a tightly knit community where they chose to live together, and then there were Jews that lived around the town. And no matter how close you were to somebody, there was always that that worry, I think, on the part of the Jews anyway, that someone could turn on you in an instant. Just centuries of, of experience had taught people that. And so I, I do talk about both the friendships that Jews and Christians had, but also the wariness that Jews had, even after you know, living in one place for generations. One of the things that I think is so interesting about these books are the way that you give us the details that build in, build both character and crime. And I'd like you to talk about finding those details and when those details like drive the narrative and when they kind of just rise up as as a result of the writing and how much of that you're you're bringing with you <laughs> this enormous uh, treasure trove of knowledge. That is hard. Uh, definitely, the details do sometimes. When I fo- sometimes drive the plot, when I discover something that I hadn't known before, that sort of doesn't fit in, into my worldview. Then, um, in this book, I was particularly interested in the uh, the Kohenic uh, laws, where somebody who's a Kohen, you know, can only marry someone who's uh, also a Cohen and is, uh, you know, definitely chaste. And also all those admonitions that, you know, Cohens can't go into graveyards and so forth. You know, the Jewish, um, there's a park in Rome that used to be a Jewish graveyard, and there's a big sign there saying, we we don't think we got all the bodies, Cohens don't come in. 
I mean, even that's today. Uh, <laughs> You know when they moved it, but but I was I was interested in how well those were followed in the Middle Ages, and I happened across a lot of material that described it and some of the problems that the Cohen class had uh, adjusting and and living within. I mean, they were a subset within a a subset, so that you know, was hard. The 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 religious aspects of these books are also really interesting, just in terms of how much people of that time were driven by faith and how much faith controlled their actions and their reactions to what went on around them. Yes, and and that was one of the things um, with Catherine, for, for instance, when she, she loved Solomon as a you know as a relative, or as a brother kind of from the time she was a child. But when she discovered that he was her cousin, that changed their relationship. And today, you know, people, you know, mixed families are everywhere. But then she always worried because, first of all, she really cared about him. And, and then she thinks, well, I can't care about him that much because he's, you know, he's another faith. And the other thing was that um, she really believed that he would never get to heaven unless he converted this was part of the core of her being, and he he had no intention of converting. And so she always has this this tension within her that she ought to be doing more to make him see that Christianity's the way to go. You know, too, it's interesting as we read these books how the characters' compulsions drive the plot and make it just, it's fun to read these books and to see these kind of belief systems play out uh, so differently than our, what we're used to. Could you talk about having been immersed in those belief systems and having mm -hmm. these characters, turning that into something that's like really pretty fun to read? Well, thank you. Um, God, you're asking me such hard questions because these are things I do without really understanding. It, uh, because if I'm living in this world, then I see the world through their eyes. And, and one thing is that there are a lot of belief systems. People have even people within the same faith have all kinds of degrees of faith and belief, and and everybody adapts, even today, adapts their own um, doctrines and dogmas to suit their lifestyle, really. Uh, so I have you know, very devout monks. I have not-so-devout monks. Um, I have scurrilous hermits that seduce young women, and it's it all varies. So and the, and there was one book where uh, it had to do with oh making a bargain with the devil, which is a, a standard. But in the 12th century, that was just never heard of. You couldn't. I mean, nobody ever thought of selling your soul to the devil because you in in their philosophy, you could always uh, repent at the moment of death and be saved. So the devil wasn't going to get you anyway, and. You know, part of this is sort of explaining to people that all of these myths that they have about Christianity in the Middle Ages and Judaism in the Middle Ages are just just that, myths. And that makes me think, one of the things that's so interesting about reading books that are set in the Middle Ages is that they lived in a world where they believed in, they actually believed and saw things so differently that they lived in a world that we would consider a fantasy, like a, a high fantasy. They, the, their perception of the world was closer to uh, 
Bilbo Baggins than to Rick Cleffel. Well, no, I I would beg to differ on that one. And and one of my comments is when they say, oh, people then were so superstitious and they saw signs and everything. And I said, Aztec uh, apocalypse or Mayan apocalypse, uh, little green or little gray men from Roswell. Come on, guys. <laughs> it was pretty much the same. Uh, and I can't find any kind of of supernatural belief that people had in the Middle Ages that somebody doesn't have today. And there were also skeptics. Now, uh, speaking of the Mayan apocalypse, you wrote about, the, you did a survey of the end of the I world. I did. That was my, that was my last book. Um, that was, yeah, The Real History of the End of the World. And I, I did cover the Mayan apocalypse. And I really was very much out of my comfort zone when I wrote that. I wrote that sort of, Berkeley asked me to, so I did. But uh, I learned a lot while writing it, and that it definitely reinforced my belief that there was nothing so weird that we don't believe it today. Now, when you were re- researching this book, could you talk about talking to people who had rather b- different belief systems than you? And- <laughs> I did, and it was much more alien to me than the Middle Ages. I talked to people who firmly believed in the, the Hopi— that they were not Hopi, but they firmly believed that the Hopis had it, and they were going to, you know, the Hopi people were going to lead us all into the next dimension. I talked to people who believed that comets foretold things. Uh, I studied the Heaven's Gate group, which were so sad, but who believed that Hale-Bopp was going to take them off um, in a spaceship. I went to one of those uh, conventions for alien visitors, and boy, was that an eye-opener. <laughs> It was it was great, but people would talk to me and explain their beliefs to me with the same wide-eyed sincerity that someone might be trying to explain transubstantiation or, or uh, you know, the assumption of the Virgin Mary into heaven, which were widely believed and still are by some people. But they believed in you know cover-ups at Roswell just as firmly. You know, it strikes me that. When you're writing the the outcast of and and these other novels of Catherine de Van Duer, that her what for her is an inconceivable future mm-hmm. is, is your present, and I'm, I wonder if you'd care to talk about that just as a writer and a reader and a, and a historian, how that changes the way that you go out there and create these characters and their perceptions. I think it's been good for me um, in a lot of ways to remember that what we think of as hardships were just day-to-day activities. You, I, I, just knowing that you, know, you didn't get greens in winter or you had to go outside most of the time to use the bathroom and you had to heat water or go to a bathhouse if you wanted to wash your hair. All all of these little things. And or even that everybody wore sort of wooden shoes in the streets, especially in Paris, in especially in the winter, because Paris was full of this black mud and you couldn't possibly walk in regular shoes or boots. It it must be uh fun to to have to um, as you're writing these books, to come up with these details and, and say, oh, well, that that detail is going to help me it drive does. this crime. It does. Um, there are several like that, some of which I probably shouldn't say in public. I can write them, but <laughs> um, but but there are things like that, things that people uh, people did or even just 
you know, having to go out to an outhouse. I'm, it, uh, there was one time in one of the books where Catherine finds a body hanging in one, trussed up like a deer. So, you know, you wouldn't do that if you were in a hotel. It, well, at least not in most of the books I read. I, it <laughs> might happen in a, in a good thriller, I suppose. <laughs> you know, uh, I'd like you to talk about the importance of the religious institutions themselves were huge, mm-hmm. were so big and so important to people's everyday lives. And in the world, they, they took the place of what we now think of as Coca-Cola companies or, you know, sports teams or something. So there was no, they had a presence in the community that I think might be, we have some of that left, but I think it must have been very different. I think it was more that... Um the, the civil authority wasn't very strong. And so for a lot of places, even just the local church was, uh, was the social center and also the administrative center. So that if you, if you wanted to sell your land or make, make even a smaller deal, you would often go to the, the church and the priest, who may or may not be literate, uh, would would help you arrange this thing. So a lot of civil civil kinds of things that we now have have now been taken over by the secular courts were were administered by the the church courts. Oh, that's so fascinating. And all of the education was uh, the University of Bologna was the first one. So in Paris now it was still what they called the cathedral schools, and the students came from everywhere, lived you know, all over the city, but all of the teachers were monks or clerics of some sort. That's that's so interesting to to think of that kind of vision of the world. I, I Could you talk about how the merchants and the trades and also the changes in technology that were happening at that time, what we think of, we probably don't even think of most of that what was changing at that time as technology anymore, but to them it certainly was. Oh, there uh, definitely. Well, merchants were always uh, in a, every society. Then were were sort of outside of the community because they traveled so much and they had a different status. There wasn't really a there was a bourgeois class, but it was mostly craftspeople and merchants were sort of between the bourgeois and the low, lower nobility because being merchants, they usually had money. But with the technology, there were, well, in two of my books, I, I deal with um, nascent technology, both of which um, I discovered people thought were invented much later. One was the water-powered forge, uh, which made iron of a strength and delicacy which was used in the cathedrals. The stained glass windows are, are the glasses fitted into the uh, iron. And you needed something that was flexible and strong. And so that was actually kind of invented to go along with the cathedrals. And I'm also writing at the time of the first Gothic cathedrals. And the other thing is the windmill, which uh, I found out when I was working on this. Everybody said, oh, the Crusaders brought it back. The windmill was invented in England. And I think it was invented so that people didn't have to pay the tax on the water mills. And because the first ones were like boxes with sails on them, and people could set them up anywhere. And the first time, first um, reference we have to a windmill is when somebody caught them and taxed it. 
Those peasants, those crafty peasants. <laughs> They're always up to something. Uh, tell us a little bit about your new book, Death Before Compline. Oh, Death Before Compline is actually a collection of seven short stories from the series that have been has have been published in other places, often very obscure. As a matter of fact, one was published in French, and I had to translate it back into English. But uh, it's sort of because I did get sort of distracted by nonfiction, and, and I'd like to write some more books in this series. So as I said, it's a collection of short stories, and it also, there's also a synopsis of the series, a little bit of historical background, and recipes, because everybody likes recipes. <laughs> Talk about finding the recipes from uh, your... Oh, I didn't find them. I invented them. Oh, you invented them? There were no recipe books then. <laughs> but I, I know what they had to cook with and how they cooked. So, Did you try any of them yourself? You know, I didn't before I put them in. And I went I went to oh, Orinda to, to speak um, a few months ago. And this woman had made my Templar roast lamb. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> It was incredible. Oh. <laughs> well, I think she was just a good cook, but she said she followed the recipe. Well, that sounds delicious. <laughs> I think maybe it was. I'll... I mean, I just uh, full of spices and marinated in in red wine. Um, what else can you need? <laughs> yeah, well, the time just uh, good good ingredients and a good mm -hmm. cook and a yeah, good. Well, recipe. she was a fine cook. I've been speaking with Sharon Newman. Her new collection of short stories is Death Before Compline. Thank you for joining me, Sharon. Well, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>